I'm Dalton Dale, music enthusiast on a mission to learn about my favorite genre, heavy metal. Join me as I listen through and learn about the history of heavy metal music. We'll be talking about bands, albums, songs, and historical events that helped create the metal music genre as we know it today. This is The Evolution Podcast. Hey everyone, what's going on? Welcome to this week's edition of the Evolution Podcast. I am your host, Dalton Dale. Excited to be here with you today. Merry Christmas. I It's not Christmas. I'm not recording on Christmas, but the day that this comes out, it will be Christmas. And I hope you all are having a fabulous day with friends, family, or for those of you that like to ride solo by yourself. Either way, I hope it's a great day, whether you're celebrating Christmas or not. I hope it's fabulous. Thanks so much for tuning in this week. I am really looking forward to this week's episode, and I've been looking forward to getting into this band for quite some time. They've been uh, one of those bands that I've just never listened to ever. It's not even really a band that I think I've ever been introduced to uh, casually by any means, and so it is... uh, it's going to be a good one. I'm looking forward to it. I I had a lot of fun listening to the record and kind of pulling some different notes out, and I'm excited to share those with you this week. We are covering early 80s power metal. Uh, This is sort of the precursor to speed and thrash metal that was born up in the mid 80s. And We've covered Metallica's Kill 'Em All, we've covered Warlock's Burning the Witches, Raven's All for One, and last week we covered Accept's Restless and Wild. All of the bands in this period uh, were focused on just getting faster, more precise, and branching out thematically into new lyrical elements such as fantasy, uh, politics, and really just more grandiose versions of their road stories, which is what became popular in themes through the new wave of British heavy metal. And then especially with early American heavy metal, there was a lot of bands talking about life on the road and what it was like to be a rock star. And I think power metal was just about taking those themes to the next level and introducing some new content into heavy metal. And really, it was formative for all other genres that kind of came after. I've said it in the last several episodes, but I really feel like this is a diverging point for heavy metal music, and I feel quite confident that this is where more modern forms of heavy metal get a lot of their style and sound and influence. I feel like there's just a lot to be pulled out of these, uh, you know, again, early 80s power metal records. And so um, we're going to jump right in and I'm going to give you some notes and we'll dig into the album and go from there. So this week we are covering Anthrax's debut album, Fistful of Metal. I've been teasing it on my Facebook for a few weeks now. A few of you guys have gotten it just by looking at little snips of the record uh, cover. It is intense. I mean, you've got a dude getting punched through the back of his head, I think, with some kind of like spiked iron knuckles or something and blood's going everywhere. It is 
uh, from what I've seen so far, one of the more graphic record covers from uh, this time period. And the album itself is no exception to, you know, a more extreme version of what was popular at the time. Fistful of Metal was released in 1984. Anthrax, uh, they came on the scene with a lot of youth and vigor and animal print clothing. <laughs> that was sort of their thing when they first came onto the scene was animal print. And it, you know, it was a stage thing. I mean, look, there have been bands all through time who have focused on how do they put on a stage production and You've got uh, the old argument about, you know, are, are you a talented musician or are you just an artist with a good stage presence? D. Snyder had a whole thing a while back where, you know, he says, hey, I was not a good vocalist, but I was a good uh, front man. I was really good at giving good stage presence on stage. And that's what got us popular. And I I think that that. I think that that stands. I think that that holds up. I think that bands have been trying to find ways of setting themselves apart for a long time. And, you know, you've got Animal Print with Anthrax. You've got Raven, who we talked about, dressed up in like hockey pads and football helmets and those sort of things. And then you move into, you know, uh, a little bit later on with Slayer and their whole get up and, and the, the rise of black metal. And then you've got, you know, as you move overseas with black metal and the face paint with the white and black that's still popular amongst like Northern European, you know, black and death metal. And then you move into the 90s when you've got, you know, Slipknot and Mushroom Head and this sort of wave of new metal that comes up with, you know, Limp Biscuit and you got Wes Borland who's out there dressing like crazy. All of these get-ups and into now, you know, more modern take on that is Sleep Token and who, you know, they've got their own masks and they've just put out some new masks. You've got the band Slaughter to Prevail. You've got Ghost. There's so many examples of bands who were doing things on stage just to get a name for themselves and just to create a presence for themselves. And, and sort of, I think it's for some bands, and in my opinion, the more successful bands, it's less about the attention grabbing that having a mask or having a particular uniform brings and more about how do we put the focus or the emphasis on the band as a unit instead of any one individual musician or person. And I think that that is a really unique way of putting your sound and style and everything that you represent as a unit in the forefront and kind of pulling out away from who are these individual people and here's who we are as a band. Slipknot is such a great example of that for years before, you know, really before the internet got a hold of everything Slipknot. Nobody knew who they were. They were just numbers behind a mask. And I think a lot of that was to say we are as a, a collective unit, this is this is what we want to be. This is we're just nine individuals who are trying to put on, you know, and put out the best music that we can. And and they, you know, certainly change the direction of of new metal and modern metal as we know it. So let's get back to Anthrax. Originally, they were formed in 1981 in Queens, New York, by the original guitarist Scott Ian and Dan Loker. Loker eventually moved to bass guitar and through some different lineup changes, they brought in some different, another bass player or two, and then some different vocalists and drummers. 
And then uh, ultimately Loker was fired from the band shortly after the release of their first album. There's a lot of names to cycle through as you go through the beginnings of this band, much like a lot of bands where people are just trying to find all those different, you know, pieces to plug into that unit. You know, again, just going back to here we are as a collective artistic unit. It's about finding the right pieces and the right parts for that. And sometimes it's just going to take a few tries. It's going to take a few different people to, you know, get that figured out. And whether that's artistic differences or schedule conflicts or, you know, just changes in life paths, anything can happen that can lead to a band settling into who becomes their unit. And and even still in the long term, you'll still see bands that kind of rotate through a few different members on some different, you know, instruments. And, you know, they still can make a whole career out of existing as a band and as a creative unit. The recorded lineup for Fistful of Metal includes Scott Ian on guitar, Dan Spitz on guitar, uh, Lilker on bass, Charlie Benante on drums, and Neil Turbin on vocals. Ian and Loker were the only founding members at the time that they recorded the album. So, you know, again, um, going through a lot and playing a lot of gigs early on before even recording an album, and then finally kind of settling into a unit they felt good with, putting some demos together, and then putting out the record that we're covering today. Let me hit you with some quick hits, and then we will dig into the album. Quick hit number one, Scott Ian has been a member of many other popular bands, uh, but most specifically uh, The Damned Things. That's a hardcore outfit uh, featuring Joe Troman and Andy Hurley from Fall Out Boy. Uh, it's got Keith Buckley uh, doing vocals from Every Time I Die, and then Dan Andriano uh, from Alkaline Trio. So kind of kind of a weird mix and then Scott Ian so kind of a strange mix of individuals but they're sort of an old school hardcore band and um, they've even been here to my city that I live in Springfield and have played here I've got a buddy of mine if you've been watching this for a while Bobby that guested with me a while back his band got to open for them it was really really cool lifelong dream for him in particular Keith Buckley is like an idol of his so they only put out an album every so often, and they only tour every once in a while. But he was also, Scott Ian was also a member of the band Stormtroopers of Death, a thrash metal satire band. I'm going to really heavily emphasize satire. Uh, that album would not exist if it had not been put out when it was. I, I actually, uh, after listening through this album a few times today, Spotify sent me down a road of just, you know, algorithm plays and Stormtroopers of Death came up, uh, several of their songs and they are something. So, uh, we, we will probably get to them at a later time. Um, but they were definitely interesting. And then, uh, lastly, Mr. Bungle, a long time, uh, experimental rock band formed with a few different other members. So let me hit you with a quick hit. Number two, anthrax was in fact named after the disease. The founding members actually saw it in a biology book and just thought it sounded sufficiently evil. Uh, so that's uh, nearly a direct quote uh, that you can go find, but uh, that is what it was named after, and it's, yeah, it's held up well, I think. Quick hit number three, today's album, uh, Fistful of Metal, 
was actually produced and released by Johnny Z or Johnny Zazula of Megaforce Records. Megaforce Records and Johnny Z are the same individuals that put out Metallica's first album, Kill Em All. So a little bit of a connection there. In fact, I had read some stories about how Anthrax was kind of in the other room while Metallica was recording some of Kill Em All because um, Scott and Dan had become friends with Johnny Z living in the Queens area and then ultimately convinced him to uh, produce and put out their first album. So I think it paid off and I think it worked worked out well. They ended up on the bill of some of Metallica's first shows for their album Kill Em All and uh, I think it was a big part of what uh, allowed them to see some early success as a band and, a, you know, I think a contributing factor to their getting noticed pretty quickly. All right, let's dig into some specifics on the album. Uh, as always, go find the album on my Heavy Metal History playlist on Spotify. You can find that by searching for me, my personal profile, Dalton A. Dale, and find my public playlist, Heavy Metal History. That covers everything that I've listened to from the beginning of this journey to today, including this album and it, uh, that's again, Spotify is just the most easily accessible for me. So that ends up being the version of these albums that I tend to listen to the most often. So go check it out and, uh, follow me there and subscribe to that playlist. If you can overall, this album is very fast. This is easily the fastest metal that I've heard in everything that I've listened to up to this point. I mean, at this point, I've listened to, I mean, I've been doing this for uh, almost a year and a half now, which is crazy to think about, but I've covered basically an album every couple of weeks. So we're, I mean, we're rounding somewhere close to 30 different albums going from 1970 to, we'll just say 1984. I think this might be the latest release that I've done. Easily the fastest that I've listened to. There is tons of double kick in the drum work. Um, overall, the drum work is a very uh, sort of punk-derived sound and style to it. Um, there's a lot of... The, the snare hits are really, really punchy, and there's a ton of hi-hat work. Uh, in fact, I noticed listening through this that there was not a lot of crash or ride cymbal work in this. Um, it was a lot of hi-hat, a lot of snare, and tom work. Uh, and the toms had a very echoey sort of sound to them, uh, just kind of uh, uh, sort of a ringy sound, which was fairly prevalent for the time period. You know, a lot of drummers were not using a lot of mutes and, uh, you know, what we call rings on their drum heads, or, you know, drum heads were very crude still up to this point, so you didn't have built-in mufflers into your drum heads or mufflers pads or anything like that to sort of hone in that um, resonance that comes when you play your drums. And so, you know, now a lot of drummers will use drum rings, which is sort of a, a it's a, a plastic piece, kind of, it's a circular piece that sits on directly on the drum head um, around the edge of the drum head. And it sort of muffles that ringing, that resonance that comes when you hit the drum. And then others will use muffle pads or muffle goo it's not it's not really goo but it's just sort of like a rubbery material that will stick to your drum head and again it just helps tone down that resonance that comes 
uh, from when you don't have that. Um, same thing as like in a bass drum where, you know, drummers will put pillows inside their bass drum. Again, that's just to cut down on the resonance. It's just to give a little bit of what what is often referred to as a, a punchier sound so that you get more of a thud as opposed to a, a sort of a, a boom sound that that would normally come out of that. Vocally, it was really weird to me, and maybe I wouldn't put this together if I didn't already have some knowledge on this band, but it was weird to me how much uh, the vocalist for this album, Neil Turbin, sounded and reminded me of John Bush. Like, there were a few songs that I thought for a second, is this John Bush? John Bush, for those of you who don't know, John Bush was the vocalist for the band Armored Saint, very popular 80s heavy metal band. I got to see Armored Saint last November with my dad when I went to go see them with Wasp. They, uh, of the bands that were at that concert, easily they were the best performance out of all of them. They they sounded so, so good, and John Bush absolutely killed the vocals that night and it was just weird to me how much they reminded me of John's vocals and specifically John actually goes on later to do vocals for Anthrax now again maybe my knowledge of him doing vocals for Anthrax maybe that's what keyed me into that and maybe that was just Anthrax had the ability to sort of pick out the that style of lead singers. I'm not entirely sure because I know really, you know, for, as far as Anthrax goes, their two most popular singers are John Bush and Joey Belladonna. I haven't listened to, I, I heard some Anthrax today that had uh, John Bush on it, and I probably heard some with Joey Belladonna, and so I would have to go listen more specifically to know, but maybe that's just the Maybe that was just always the style of vocal that they were going for, and Neil Turbin sort of fit that bill. He does have some really, really great vocals, though. He's got a really cool tone, and it borders uh, into more screamy-sounding vocals at times. He's got a very high upper register, um, and the qualities were very, very common for that time period. A lot of vocalists were in their upper register a lot. And a lot of that was popularized by, you know, uh, Bruce... Bruce Dickinson, Rob Halford. So there was just a lot of vocalists, Dio, a lot of vocalists were doing that at that time. And it was just the more prevalent sounding vocal for heavy metal of the time. The guitar work takes from a lot of sounds and styles, uh, anywhere from new wave of British heavy metal all the way into, you know, the common elements of power metal at the time. You know, their lead guitar work was very reminiscent of bands like Iron Maiden and Judas Priest. A lot of dual guitar, back and forth, harmonizing scales and those sorts of things. The rhythm guitar had a lot more elements, uh, you know, common for power metal at that time. That was really, for me, again, for the speed of this record, I feel like a lot of this bordered into early speed metal. And there was a, a lot of gallop picking and then a lot of palm muted uh, riffing that kind of came for... Uh, for this album and came through on this album. So just some overall tones and notes of things that I heard through the whole album. 
uh, let's take a moment and we will dig into some of the songs on the album. Again, I'm not going to go over every single song and every single detail. I can't play them here, um, copyright laws and things like that. So just go listen to it. And uh, if you have any other notes or anything else that stands out to you, find me on socials, Facebook, TikTok, any, anywhere like that, and uh, tell me about it. I would love to hear your thoughts. All right, digging into the album. So it uh, opens really, really fast. It's, uh, again, the, just the whole thing is really, really, really fast. I, like, I don't know that I can adequately describe how fast it is. I, we really have not heard anything as fast as this at Motorhead is maybe the closest. Metallica, I would say, is right up there for sure. And, you know, they're just pioneers. I mean, there's a reason Metallica, Anthrax, Megadeth, Slayer, there's a there's a reason they're considered the big four of heavy metal. They all had a hand in popularizing and developing more specific genres, subgenres of heavy metal music. And it's pretty easy when listening to this record, what Anthrax had a hand in for what they were doing at the time. So, you know, opens with uh, the song Death Rider. Uh, again, very fast, very punchy, you know, song. Moves into a song called Metal Thrashing Mad. I was listening to this. And I don't know what this song is about. It sounds like it's about driving as fast as he can. And I there's no other real theme present. So I'm not sure if he's just a speed demon or maybe he's really pissed off and like, oh, I'm going to go for a drive and get out my anger and rage or there's just something else going on. But it's not a really fast-paced beat. Uh, there's a really catchy chord progression on the pre-chorus and chorus. It's got a sort of like power chord type progression that takes you through to the chorus. And uh, I I liked it. I thought it was pretty nice. Then um, you kind of move into my, my, not kind of, you move into my least favorite song after this. It's called Eight, I'm 18. This is the worst song on the album. I don't know if this was like intended to be their radio hit or, you know, what if it was just something to help get them notice or get people keyed into them, but it feels so dull compared to the rest of the album. It's not that it's not a skillful song or that it's not a good song for another band. It just doesn't fit. To me, it's not, it's like Anthrax doing a cover of a power ballad from a band like Van Halen or Rat or somebody like that. Like, it just feels so different than the entire rest of the album. Pace, sound, style, like everything. There's so many things about it that just sound so off from the whole rest of the album. Then we move into the song Panic, and it's crazy fast. Like the riff and the intro has this sort of like dissonant progression to it, and it adds to the feeling of the song, of a song titled Panic. Uh, it just makes you feel a little bit uncomfortable. The song is either about war or sex. I can't really tell. Uh, it's got themes from both subjects. So you tell me what you think. Uh, then probably my, no, not probably. This is definitely my most favorite moment from the entire album. 
I would argue to say this might have been one of my most favorite moments from anything else I've listened to. I there are some moments from the first two Black Sabbath records that really stand out to me. This one is right up there with that. So the song Subjugator, it's about halfway through the album. There's at the two minute and 30 second mark um, is where it first happens. It happens again later in the song. And interestingly, when it happens again later, it's almost like the guitar wasn't plugged in or something. But there's this really sick guitar and drum breakdown it's like a, it's sort of like a breakdown it's it, this is easily the first instance i've heard of any that in, anything that remotely resembles what i consider a breakdown from like modern me- heavy metal which was born out of you know late 80s hardcore early 90s hardcore and then evolved into metalcore and then it became a staple of metalcore metallic hardcore and all of those other genres for those of you that are huge heavy metal fans you know what i'm talking about and so go find that two minutes and 30 seconds subjugator it's it is awesome i again easily one of my favorite moments from probably uh, almost everything that I've listened to. Then you move through a few more tracks and then it closes out with a song called Howling Furies. To me, the most interesting part of this, it, it threw me off because the few ta- first few times I was listening to this record, I thought that the song right before this, Across the River, it's an instrumental. It's, it's a really fun, really cool instrumental. It's just, it's it's long and it's just epic sounding and it's really cool. So every time I listen to this for the first few times before I realized what was happening, I thought that the song that follows that, Howling Furies, I kept thinking it was actually The Four Horsemen by Metallica because the intro riff for just a few seconds sounds just like The Four Horsemen riff. It moves out of that riff pretty quickly and into a different riff, so it differentiates itself really quickly. But for the first few times coming straight out of an instrumental and then into a riff that sounds just like the Four Horsemen, which you can imagine Spotify would put that track with something like Anthrax. It kind of messed with my head a little bit and made me think that, you know, it was just an algorithm play. And then I realized it was actually just the last track of the song after the first couple listens of the album. That about sums it up. Uh, again, I enjoyed listening to this record. This is a band that I've had on my list for a long time. This it's just one of those. I mean, again, they they are a, a a big four heavy metal band, and they're legendary. And they did all of these different things for speed and thrash metal, and uh, you know, again, other various subgenres of metal as they continue to move on and through time. And uh, it was fun. I enjoyed it. I will be interested to get into some more Anthrax. I also understand and acknowledge there's so much music to listen to and this is just going to be a really long journey but i'm excited and grateful that you have chosen to listen along and and join me on the journey and i'm excited to continue to share with you what i'm learning as i go i've my hope through all of this is that i can inspire somebody somewhere to dig into the roots of what they enjoy Go learn about your hobbies. Go learn about your passions. Get invested into the things that you love because it's important and it's critical. And if it wasn't for bands like Anthrax, if it wasn't for bands like Iron Maiden, if it wasn't for bands like Blood Rock, if it wasn't for bands like 
Black Sabbath and and even beyond Black Sabbath, who, you know, Ozzy attributes his stuff to, you know, Pink Floyd and Zeppelin and those bands. I mean, if not for the history of the things that you love, you wouldn't get to enjoy the things that you do today. So go, that's my hope. That's, that's my, my goal is, is to learn about the thing that I love. And I hope that you're getting to learn along the way and that you share the same passion that I do. And I hope that if you have something that you also love, go learn about it, go find a book about the history of it and spend some time because I am developing an even bigger passion and an even bigger space in my heart for all of the things that I enjoy about music. And um, to me that that's just really special. So thank you for tuning in. Thank you for listening. I really appreciate all of the support. Go find me on Facebook and follow my page, subscribe to my page, go find the podcast and rate it five stars. If you're listening to this, as soon as you're done with this episode, just go leave a rating. It takes like two seconds. And all you have to do is listen to like a minute of an episode and you can leave a rating. Whether you like me or not, five stars, I would really appreciate it. Go find me on TikTok, Evolution Pod. Go find me on YouTube. You can check out the videos. And especially be sure that you follow for the episode that follows this because I am like, I am freaking... I'm freaking out. That's what I'm doing. And and I'm going to have the guitarist for one of my favorite bands since I was in high school. And I'm going to be interviewing him for my next episode. And I am just panicking a little bit and it'll be fine. It's going to be great. It's going to be an awesome episode. So please go follow and subscribe so that you can check that next episode out. It's going to be... Oh... It's going to be a dream come true for me, and I'm excited to share it with you. So as always, thank you all. I hope you have a great day again. Merry Christmas, happy holidays, and a happy new year. I will see you next time.